Well, welcome City Light U uh, to our spring semester. You know, if you are new, uh, which I think I've already seen a few new faces, uh, welcome. We are glad that you're here. We know that in the spring we always get a few new people. So we're, we're excited to have you here. Hopefully you guys can connect tonight and, and get involved with us. Um, before we jump into what Jenny read in our text for tonight, I want to do a couple things just to kind of help us get into the spring. And so the first thing quickly is, uh, if you've been around, you know that for the last uh, month or two, we've been kind of promoting our summer missions. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to encourage you guys, if you're here tonight and you've been hearing about this, or if you're here for the first time tonight, um, man, I just encourage you guys, would you seriously consider going? You know, we do these mission trips, not just because we're a church group and we're supposed to, but but we believe this is like a, a huge, valuable way to spend your summer. And so uh, we think it's kind of twofold. I think there's two reasons why I really want you guys to consider going. First, to go gets us out of our kind of small box framework for our life and our Christian viewpoint. So to, if that makes sense, well, what I love about going somewhere is what it does is it, uh, it gets you out of your space and it puts you somewhere else with different viewpoints, with different experiences. And what it does is it helps us continue to become a community that doesn't just look inward, but continues to help us look out. It helps us look out at what's going on around the world. That's why we go to San Diego, which you have 10 weeks to do nothing but train in evangelism and discipleship. And frankly, there's a lot worse places to spend your summer than San Diego. So you should consider it, right? Like it, it, it helps us change how we see People. Otherwise, we have trips to Thailand and South Africa, which help us see different types of people, different cultures, and it helps us see God's heart. That if we really believe this book that says God's heart isn't just for America and it isn't just for the people you're right around, but for all peoples of all nations and all over, then we should be about that, that we should care about that, and, and we should go. And so uh, I just urge you guys, we're going to be talking about this at the very end of tonight and kind of listing out what we're going to be doing again. and. And I just want to encourage you guys, consider going. Consider going. Because the second reason is, this will change you. Like, I don't want that to be the primary reason we go, but that is a huge factor. That if you go on one of these trips, you don't come back the same. Like, when you go, it changes who you are, how you see God, and how you see people. You can ask anybody that's gone on the trips in the past, it changes you. And so, um, I encourage you guys, go. But we'll talk about that later. Um, the second thing is, I want to just kind of introduce what we're going to be doing this spring. So, throughout this entire semester, we're going to be studying through, on Tuesday nights, the book Hebrews. Okay, so if you've been around for a while, you might know in the fall, we usually do a little bit more topical. We try to take some different ideas about God or about how we follow God, and we just sort through that. And in the spring, what we do is we pick a book, and we just dive in. And we go deep, and we sit here for the entire spring. I think we've got 14 weeks, including tonight. And we're just going to sort through what does the author of Hebrews have for us today? Well, what is this going to do for us as a community? And so to start, before we get into our actual text for tonight, I want to just do a little bit of setup on Hebrews. So you, can, you don't really have to write notes if you don't want, but just listen. This is kind of the, the context and where we're entering in in Hebrews. So uh, if you do have a Bible, you can flip there now. Hebrews is actually in the New Testament, so it's towards the end of our Bibles. And Hebrews is a little bit unique in the New Testament because most of the, uh, the letters in the New Testament 
are, are, are that. They're, they're letters. Somebody wrote down a specific letter to a church or to a person in, in that kind of form of communication. So uh, we have a lot of letters by Paul. If you've heard of the Apostle Paul, he wrote Romans and Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, all these different books. And all they are, they're, they're actual letters that he wrote addressing specific issues to a church or to a person. Now Hebrews is a little bit unique because it's not so much a letter as it is a sermon. The most commentaries say that really Hebrews isn't a letter that was written down, but it's more of a sermon that is to be preached. Now there's different literary features that we can see that in, but, but we find in the very end of the book, in his kind of ending or conclusion, he asked them to bear with my word of exhortation. Now we see Hebrews was written in Greek, in the Greek language, so we translate it word of exhortation, but that phrase is actually used twice, uh, two other times in the New Testament Acts to describe sermons. So it's kind of an idiom that, that shows uh, that this is a sermon. So uh, like in our context, if, if somebody preaches and, and we get down and, and someone might say, man, he really, he brought the word, right? Have you ever heard that? I mean, if you're not a Christian, it's, we kind of have our own language and some things, for better or for worse, it just is what it is. But, but we say things like that, right? Man, he just brought the word there. What do you say? I mean, really you're saying, he just preached a good sermon, right? It's kind of that, it, it's, it's, it's this little idiom, it's this thing that he's saying, man, this word of exhortation is really, he's saying, man, bear with my sermon I preach to you. And so what we find here is a sermon. So it's I want to encourage you as we're studying through this, this spring, to not read it as a letter being dissected and argued in different points, but, but really this is, this is a sermon. It's to be read as a whole. It's to be read uh, as, as if you're listening to it, to hear the voice in his argument, to hear the flow as any good sermon should have. And so uh, what we have here is a sermon. Now, the author of Hebrews uh, is a little bit... Um, debated or contested. And, and if you're here and you know that, you might be thinking, okay, well, what's he going to say? Who do you believe wrote it? I don't know. Like, we just don't know. If you've read anything about this, you know that everybody can throw out an argument, but the bottom line is we, we just don't know. Some people think, well, this is Paul writing, or this is Apollos and Barnabas and Luke, and some people even think it's Priscilla, this woman uh, in the early church. And, and frankly, we just don't know. There, there's no good uh, evidence that really points us to one person specifically. And so even one of the early church fathers, Origen, said, for as to the author of Hebrews, only God knows. Right? Like they, even then, they didn't know. This wasn't recorded, so we don't know. But what we do know is that this author was most likely a leader or pastor in this little house church, I think probably close to Rome. And so... This author is writing to this church that's probably a smaller house church that is feeling the weight of the pressures of the world against them. So what we're going to see throughout this is this sermon is really pressing in to the weight of falling away from Jesus. What he's going to continually come back to is say, I want you guys to cling to and rest in Jesus. And if you hear me, I said cling to and rest in, which if that seems confusing to you, welcome to Hebrews, right? Like this, it, he, he continually maps out this idea that, hey, we've got to fight to cling towards Jesus. And you've got to rest in the fact that he did it when you couldn't. And we're going to sort through all this as he 
uh, goes through the pressures of being in a world where it's so easy to fall away. Being in a world where maybe you're persecuted for your faith. Being in a world where it's hard to stay a Christian. This is the context that the author's writing in. The other thing that we know about Hebrews is that the church is probably primarily Jews. So Hebrews is interesting because it, more than any other book in the New Testament, or it refers back to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. So more than any other book, Hebrews uses things from the Old Testament to preach Christ to these post-Christ Christians. If that makes sense. So what he's doing here is he's using their, their scriptures or our Old Testament, and he's saying all of these things pointed us to Jesus. You know, there's 35 different Old Testament quotations in Hebrews. There's 34 other allusions to Old Testament ideas. There's 19 summaries of Old Testament material. And there's 13 references to a specific name or topic or place that doesn't even have a quote to it. Now, those are a lot of numbers. But what I'm saying is this author is using all of the Old Testament and saying all of what God was doing here was leading us to Jesus. This is the context of what this author is speaking into. And so the question then for us this spring is why do we study it? Right? Like I want you guys to be asking that question. So, so what does this matter? Every Tuesday night you should be here and thinking, so what does this mean for me? What does this matter? Right? If this is just for Jews in the Old Testament, why in 2017 are, is a college ministry studying it? Well, I think there's two reasons. First, I love the fact that what the author does is he uses from Genesis to Malachi, that's the bookends of the Old Testament, he uses the entire Old Testament, and he teaches us how to understand that in light of Jesus. So, you know, as we were deciding what book we were going to go through, I was thinking through, you know, the last few years here at City Light U, we've gone through James and Acts and Colossians, all New Testament books, and I started thinking through, man, we really need to study the Old Testament, right? Like, if we can be honest, it's hard for us sometimes to get into the Old Testament. We don't understand it. We don't know what's going on, and we don't feel like it's relevant, right? Like, that's just it's our view towards the Old Testament. So we're sorting through, I mean, how do we teach that well? And so we, I was thinking through, maybe we could maybe get into a specific book or, or trying to figure out what to do. And then we landed on the idea of Hebrews. Because what Hebrews does is it's going to take the entirety of what God was doing, and it's going to basically preach the sermons for us. Right, he's going to say, this is what was happening then, here's how you preach the gospel, and this is how it applies to your life today. I mean, that's my sermon, right? Like, that's what we do. And so instead of me doing the hard work, I'm going to let the author do the hard work, and we're just going to preach through how do we understand the Old Testament in light of Jesus. Well, the second reason I want to study it is really at answering that question, okay, so what does it mean for us tonight? Because the point of Tuesday nights are for us to see Christ more clearly and follow him more closely. Right? So if you didn't know, that's my goal for these Tuesday nights. If you come here on a Tuesday night, what I want from you, what I want for you is that when you walk out of here, you see Christ a little more clearly. And this week you're going to follow him a little more closely. Right? That's what I'm striving for. That's what I want for you. And what the author of Hebrews wants for his church is something very similar. 
What he's going to tell them is he says, man, I want you to see Jesus as supreme over all things. I want you to see Jesus for who he really is, and I want you to obey what he says. Because I want you to see him more clearly and follow him more closely. And he says, I want you to endure in the faith through those two things. This book is a book of endurance. It's a book with the aim of Christians making it till the end. And that is my heart and my goal for us as a community. You know, I have people sometimes that ask me, you know, Andrew, how's City Light U going? Like, what's going on in City Light U? How, how is this first semester? And what they're really asking me, to be honest, is how many people do you got, right? How many people are at your big group gathering? And, and in my mind, I immediately think, well, we've got 150 people, and we've got, you know, 100 and some in city groups, and, and we immediately go to these numbers, and you know, I've had this little shift of focus where I've started telling people, you know, if you ask me how City is going, I'm going to say, I mean, I'll tell you in 20 years, right? Because the success of this ministry is not to gain a thousand people on a Tuesday night and then let them all fall away. The success of this ministry is if all of us are walking with Jesus in 20 years, that's the goal of what we're doing here. I don't care if there's one person, ten people, a thousand people in the room on a Tuesday night if they all fall away after college. What I want for you guys is I want you to endure. When life gets hard, I want you to endure. When the pressures of the world start creeping in, I want you to endure. When you become husbands and wives, I want you to endure in the faith. When you become parents, I want you to raise your kids to love the Lord. When you become businessmen and teachers and construction workers and engineers, I want you to do that for the glory of God. I don't care if there's a thousand people here tonight. I want a thousand people to be walking with Jesus in 20 years. And this book is a cry for the endurance of the saints. That, that all of you would see Christ, would know him, and would be walking with him till the end of your days. And so this is why we're studying Hebrews this semester. This is a sermon written to a group of Christians in a tough time, in a tough world, to make it to the end. I want to preach this semester for all of you to know Christ, to walk with him in tough times, in a tough world, so that you all will make it to the end. I want us to have the fuel we need in our tanks to reach the finish line. So that's why we're preaching through it. So let me read these verses again for tonight. Now if you're thinking, I already went 15 minutes, I'm still going to preach a sermon. It's going to be short. But we are going to get through these verses. So we're going to go, let me read these really quick. I'm going to pray, and we're going to just do a quick overview of 1 through 4. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the, power, by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Oh, Father, give us grace to understand. Give us um, eyes to see your Son more clearly. God, we need you. And help us. Amen. In the early 
1960s, there was a man, he was a Swedish uh, filmmaker named Ingram uh, Bergman. Ingram Bergman. Okay, he's a Swedish filmmaker, early 1960s. 60s. There's a story where he would tell um, that at one point he was listening to this composer, listening to this piece, and he said he seemed to have this vision that came across him. So he's listening to this piece of music, and he gets this vision. You know, in the vision, he's standing in this big, massive cathedral. And he's standing, staring at this portrait of Jesus Christ. Now, Ingram, who would maybe say he's an agnostic, so he doesn't fully believe in God, but he might be real. He's kind of in the middle. He, he looks and he says, speak to me. He sits there. He begins crying out, speak to me. He's staring at this picture of Jesus, and he's crying out to God. He says, speak to me. I will not leave this cathedral until you speak to me. What he's doing here is he's staring at this portrait, and he wants this portrait to miraculously come to life and give him some sort of voice that shows God is real. Well, he fades out of this vision, and there's no miraculous story. The, the portrait was a portrait. The portrait didn't speak. And a year later, this man goes on to write and direct a film called The Silence, which was all about the character's despair that God was not near and that God does not speak. You see, he had this heart-wrenching desire to know, God, are you real? Are you here? If you're real, just speak to me. If you're near, if you want me to believe in you, just speak through this miraculous portrait. You do that, and I'm here. I'm with you. And I wonder if you guys have ever had that moment where maybe you've cried out to God. God, speak to me. Just tell me. If you are real, just give me some sort of sign, right? Maybe alone in a bedroom through tears. Maybe out in nature. Maybe through the chaos of everyday life. And you just think, God, if you're real, just speak to me. Right? Bergman wanted this portrait to speak. Oftentimes we want... Just give me your audible voice. If you would just tell me something, I would follow it. Right? We want these weird like smoke signals or this, this miraculous sign from above. If you do that, I'll really know you're real. Have you ever asked this question? Have you ever cried out, God, I want to know if you'll speak to me? See, what we have in this text that we're looking at tonight is an answer to this question, if you've ever had this longing in your heart for God to be near, to know, to answer your question, are you real? Do you care about me? Do you love me? Are you able to speak to me? Are you really here? This book is going to give us the answer. And friends, if you've asked that question, this is good news for what this author is about to say. So look at this in verse 1. And you can hear this sermon coming out, right? This is a sermon introduction. It says, long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So remember, and throughout this whole series, we're going to be doing this. We're going to be going back. So remember, this is a Jewish context. And what he's saying here is long ago, over many years, many different ways, God spoke to us by his prophets or by his messengers. Now, this was a big deal for the Old Testament people of God that he would actually speak to them. His voice meant a lot for two reasons. One, 
God's voice, his Old Testament people, directed them and showed them how to live. You see, all the Old Testament is slowly being revealed. God is slowly revealing his character, slowly revealing who he is, slowly revealing how he wants them to live. They didn't have this entire book at their will. And so when he spoke, it actually showed them and directed them, this is how I want you to live. It revealed to them, this is my character. This is who I am. It's why in the beginning of Genesis and Exodus, you'll see many times God describing himself. This is the first time they're hearing, who is this God? He's revealing to them in many ways, through many messengers and prophets, his will, how he wants them to live, his character, who he is, and why they should trust him. But the other reason I think this is important is because when God spoke to his people, it revealed to them that he was near. When God's voice came, it showed them that he was close to them, that he cared for them, that he was guiding them and showing them how to live. When he was silent, oftentimes that was a cause of judgment against their disobedience. So he would say, if you disobey, I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. I'm not going to walk with you anymore. I'm not going to be near to you anymore. I'm going to stay silent. Part of their judgment was his presence leaving their presence and that him not speaking to them. See, when God spoke to them, it meant that he was near, that he cared about them, that he was continually showing them how to live and who he was. And just think about it. So I was um, in Thailand this summer. And Thailand, I mean, from here is literally like across the entire globe, right? There's uh, miles and miles and miles of distance. And it feels like you're really far until you can get on your phone and you can get onto FaceTime, and I could call and speak to any, like, friend or family here. Now, that didn't take me right there. Like, the distance was still there, but even just the voice made them feel near, right? When you hear somebody's voice, it makes you feel near to them. And on the other side, think about if you had a, a baby or a child in a dark room, their parent could be sitting right next to the crib, but if they can't see them and they can't hear them, that parent in their mind might as well be thousands of miles away because they can't hear them. They're not near. When you don't speak, you feel distant. When you do speak, you automatically feel more near to each other. For the Old Testament people of God, when he spoke, it meant that he still cared for them. It meant that he was still with them. It meant that he was still going to guide them. So for God not to speak means that he's distant. I think it's a large part of why we cry out to God to speak anyway. But if you've ever asked that question, God, just speak to me. What you really want to know is, God, do you care about me? Are you, are you willing to answer me? Are you willing to enter into where I'm at? Are you willing to give me the answers that I need? Are you willing to show that you love me? Are you willing to guide me? This next step. Really, when we're asking this question, God, are you going to speak? Is are you actually near to me? And when we don't feel like we hear God, it might as well feel like He's millions of miles away, not thinking about us at all, right? I mean, this is the nature of God speaking. Now, here He says, Hey, He was slowly speaking and revealing Himself to the prophets. But then He goes on in verse 2. He says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, 
as he's slowly revealing himself, he's slowly showing that he cares to his Old Testament people, yet at one time in history, it says he has fully come. Like, now he is here. This idea is that he used to speak to the prophets, but now in these last days, so from that point to the end of time, it says he's spoken this one way. And he says it's not just another prophet that came. It's not just another person that he sent. He said, but he has spoken through his son. So if we want to hear God's voice to know if he's near, to know if he cares, to know if he's present with us, to know if he would come to us, God in his sovereign plan showed the answers to that in no greater way than actually coming to us. And we see this. So the rest of these verses are just explaining why this is so magnificent. Why this idea that Jesus came is so great. You see, this whole verse, 1 through 4, these whole verses, it's actually in the Greek one sentence. It's one idea with one subject and one main verb. God has spoken. Everything else is centered around this idea, God has spoken. And the biggest qualifier for that is that he has now spoken through his son. So what does this mean? Keep reading. He says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Now he's going to explain the son. He says, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. So he's giving his kind of place in eternity here. He's saying that from the beginning of time, Jesus was the one who is intended to own all things, to rule and to reign over everything. He's the heir. He gets everything, and he created the world. You know, we see this in John 1, where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through the Word, all things were created. Again, he's going all the way back to Genesis 1, and when it said, God created by speaking through his Word, he created, here he's saying, that Word that created was Jesus. That from the very beginning of time, Jesus didn't come into existence, he's not inferior he was there from the very beginning he keeps going verse 3 he says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power what he's doing is he's saying in different ways that Jesus is God he's showing us here he says he is the radiance of the glory of God now think about this in, in the distinction between radiance and reflection. Okay, so think about uh, the idea of the sun and the moon. Okay, the sun radiates light. Okay, the, the sun radiates light. It's not reflecting anything. Like, it's coming up with the light. It is, the light is in the sun, yet the moon simply reflects the light. It's not creating the light. It isn't the light, but what it does is it hits the light and it reflects it. So when we see the moon, we're not seeing the moon's light. We're seeing the sun's light reflected, yet when we see the sun, we're actually seeing the radiance of the light of the sun. Similarly, what he's saying, he's saying, Jesus isn't just reflecting God's glory. He's not just reflecting the beauty of God. He is the radiance. He is the manifestation of God's glory. So when we see the sun, it's not God's glory reflected off of him. It is the glory of God. He's saying that Jesus is God on earth. He goes on to say that he is the exact imprint of his nature. Again, you go back to Genesis 1, all humans were created in the image of God. Jesus was the exact 
image of God. He didn't have pieces of God. He was the fullness of God. And it goes on to say that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, if you read in Psalms and other Old Testament passages, it says that there's only one that sustains the earth. There's only one that holds the earth in the palm of his hand, and it's God alone. Now, the author here is saying, but it's Jesus who upholds the earth. It's Jesus who sustains life. What he's saying isn't a contradiction. He's saying Jesus is that God. The God that you've worshipped for thousands of years is Jesus. He is the radiance. He is the image, and he is the power of God. You can keep going. He says, after, after this, he says, after making purification for sins. Here he shows us why he came. He's saying, this was his place. Almighty God, heir of the world, creator of all things, he came as the exact imprint of God so that he could make right everything that had gone wrong. You see, Jesus came ultimately to die on the cross to purify sins. You know, all of us are marked by sin. All of us are separated from God. You know the reason why we cry out to God and wonder if he's near, why we feel that distance, is because in sin, we are separated from God. In sin, we are so far from God that we cannot be in his presence, yet here he gives the answer. You see, God couldn't send another sinner to pay for sins, so he sent his son. And the work that his son did on the cross was to clear you of your sins. That if you put your faith in him, you're forgiven. It's purified. You're clean in him. And he not only saves those who believe, but he sets in motion fixing all things that sin broke. Everything in the world that is evil and broken, he has begun a restoring process. And finally, after this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He said after he died, after he opened the way for you to come back into the presence of God, he ascended back into heaven. And now he's even higher than any supreme being, any supernatural being, any angelic being, anything in the world. It says he is higher than that, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. For the Jews, this imagery is massive. Because to sit down shows completion. It shows that the work is done. It, it, it brings us back to when Jesus was on the cross and he said, in his death it is finished. That it's over. That there's no more work that has to be done. That he has done it. It's finished. He sits. And to sit at the right hand of the Father is to be honored and elevated above all things. Friends, this, this is Jesus. This is the one who was before all things. This is the exact radiance of God. This isn't any other created being. This is God himself who came to save sinners, to restore broken things in this world. And now he sits because the work is done and he is waiting until he brings us all home. This is Jesus. And what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's telling his people, this is who we serve. This is the Jesus who's above all things. The next 13 chapters are all going to explain why Jesus is above all things and how we can live in obedience to him. So to close, 
again, I want you to ask, so what? What does that mean? What does that do for me, right? Who cares? So what? Okay, so Jesus died. He's now in heaven. He's seated above the throne. He's God himself. So what? Well, I think the biggest thing that we see here is that when we feel that distance, when we feel that longing to hear from God, when we want the, the miracles and the signs, what the author of Hebrews is going to say is you don't need any of that. You have God himself in Jesus. If you want to wonder, does God really love me? He's going to say yes because of the cross of Christ. You're going to wonder, is God near to me? He's going to say yes because he dwelt among us and he sent his spirit inside of us. If you wonder, man, is God powerful enough to fix my situation? He's going to say yes because he conquered all things in Jesus. What the Hebrews author is going to do is say that all things that you wonder if God's able, if God's caring, if God's near, if God's powerful enough, he's going to say you don't need some special revelation. You need to simply look at Jesus. So friends, to end, I want to just ask you, are you looking and listening to Jesus? Are you looking and listening to Jesus? As I said, what we want out of these nights in this spring is I want you to see Jesus more clearly. I want you to obey his voice and walk with him more closely. So are you listening? Are you looking to him? You know, I'll, I'll end with this. I was interested you know, I'm wondering, as, as I think about my life, I mean, am I really listening to Jesus? You know, Hebrews is going to say he's the centerfold of all of history. Like, everything orients itself around him. Truth found itself fully in him. Am I listening to this? And I'm wondering because, you know, honestly, we intake so much material on a daily basis. Right? Like, we're hearing voices from everywhere. We wonder if we can hear God, but we know we can hear the things around us. So I did a little bit of research. And uh, hopefully this makes sense as I communicate it. But I wanted to see how much, how much do we consume in regards of media and voices and, and things. How much do we actually intake and consume? And so I found that uh, this is how much the world consumes of media in one minute. Okay, so in one minute, the entire world, this is how much we're seeing, intaking, and consuming. So there are every minute... 4.1 million likes on Facebook. 4.1 million likes on Facebook every minute. There's 2.4 million likes or hearts or whatever on Instagram. Every minute, there's 2.4 million. Every minute, there's 300 hours of video, new video that's uploaded as more content on the internet. Every minute. There's 350,000 tweets sent every minute. This is what's crazy. There's 7 million Snapchat videos watched every minute. Seven million Snapchat videos are being watched every minute. 87,000 hours of video are streamed through Netflix every minute. And 3.5 million texts are sent every minute. What I say all this to say is this is all content, voices, and things that we hear, that we see, and that we consume every minute. Our lives are defined by what we intake, by what we see by what we like on Facebook, by the videos that we watch, by the words that we're reading. We are consumed by this. And I want to encourage you, as the Hebrews author is encouraging us, that, that to make it, to get there in the end, we have to primarily listen to Jesus. 
There's a thousand things you're going to hear every day. It's a thousand lies and a thousand different ways to view the world and a thousand different ways to view politics and a thousand different ways to view yourself and why you should look different, be better, act a certain way. And I want you and I'm begging you, you have to listen to Jesus. If he is who verses 1 through 4 says he is, he orients everything. Our lives, our ears, and our eyes have to be fixed on Jesus. An author said that the purpose of Hebrews is simply this, that our endurance ultimately will depend on the health of one's relationship to Christ and faithful obedience to the word. One's endurance ultimately will depend on the health of one's relationship to Christ and faithful obedience to the word. If we want to make it, we're going to read through this book and we're going to see Christ more clearly. We're going to follow him more closely. Let me pray. Father God, I pray in a world that we are in just consumed by voices and words and images and videos and media, God, would you help us to first and foremost hear from you? God, would we as a people trust in what you say, look to you, that we wouldn't look for a miraculous sign or a portrait to speak to us, but that we would say we know God has spoken because he came. Jesus, that we wouldn't keep looking for more special revelations, but that we would simply look back and see that all we have is in you. God, I pray over this semester, would you help us? Would you help us believe this? Would you help us live this? Would we see you more clearly and would we follow you more closely?